And then, more right here in our church, I don't know if you have children, but we have our play structure is actually being stalled right now. We're in the middle of it. If you want to know what that looks like, you can look behind me here. And uh, we're excited about that. It's big. It's, it's as tall as the me- mezzanine that it's next to. And then that'll be all covered with the theme of a sunken ship because we've got the underwater theme and everything going on there. So that's going well. So you'll, that should be up. And next Sunday, you should be able to see what that's going to look like, even though the floor has not been redone yet. So we're still working on that. So that's cool, right? And your kids are more excited about it than you are. I could tell you that right now. And then we're in a series called Ezekiel, and it's just kind of a 30,000 feet flyover of Ezekiel, and we're talking about some strange things that happened, but uh, I want to remind you of the context just so this all fits in your mind, because the Bible, really, the Old Testament's a story and how that fits in. And so if you'll remember, uh, God, you know, called his people, he actually called Abraham and said, from your line, the whole world is going to be blessed, and Abraham had a family, and then his grandson Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, as they were adults and had their families, though, there was a famine in the land, and the 11 of those, 10 of those sons actually sold one of their sons into slavery, went to Egypt. Did not mean to mention all that. But anyway, the, these people ended up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and they grew into a nation, and they cried out to God, and God delivered them. And allowed them to go into the promised land, which they did. Which actually, was, God tells us, he was judging those nations. So Israel leaves Egypt. They wander for 40 years. They go into the promised land. They conquer that land. And then the problem with so they have this brand new nation. But the problem is they keep following God for a little while. But then they keep turning away from God. And not just rebelling against God, but even to the extent of worshiping false gods from the cultures around them. And then when they would do that, God would remove his hand of protection and neighboring countries would come in and dominate them. And when it got real bad, they would cry out to God and ask for deliverance. And then God would raise up a leader and that leader would deliver them. And that just happened over and over and over again. Rebel against God. Things got bad. They would be conquered. When it got terrible, they would cry out to God. God would have mercy on them and dries up a leader and, and deliver them. And those leaders were called judges, and we can read about them in the book of... That's right. And then the people said, hey, we want a king like the other nations around them. And God said, well, okay, I'll let you do that. And he, Saul became the first king, but Saul... Uh, did not have a full heart to follow God. And so Saul was ultimately removed and even his line. And then David became king. And God and said, hey, David, it'll be his lineage that will be the king forever. And that's actually the lineage of Jesus Christ. David reigned and he actually had a heart for God and he gathered things to build a temple for God because before that they were using a tabernacle, and that's where they had the Ark of the Covenant in. And God said, no, I'm going to have your son build it. When David died, then Solomon became king. And Solomon then had wisdom from God. He ended up building the temple. And Israel really hit the map then. I mean, they were a world power. David brought peace from the surrounding enemies. But Solomon brought sort of uh, notoriety through through all the world that world leaders were coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And so the temple is built, 
But then when Solomon dies, it passes to his son. Well, during Solomon's reign, because of all the building projects, taxes were really high. And as, he, as his son was being installed, the northern tribes kind of came to Jerusalem and said, Hey, look, you know, these taxes have been heavy. We've been doing this for a long time. We want to support you. We want to follow you. But we don't want to pay as high taxes. Can you cut these taxes down a little bit? How many can relate to that? Can you cut the tax? You know, so we get that, right? And Solomon's son kind of considers that. But then he's got some young advisors that are hanging out with him. And they basically say to him, hey, you should just crush these people. I mean, you, you don't take that. You're the king, man. And so he answers harshly to these people and says, hey, I'm going to be tougher on you than my dad ever was. And then all of a sudden, the nation divides into two. So Israel's a nation divides into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom has 10 tribes, and, uh, and they're called Israel. And then the southern kingdom is Judah mainly, but there's also a tribe, Benjamin, that's there. And that's where Jerusalem is. So it's two, two different kingdoms now, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. But the people keep drifting from God. And God keeps warning the people that he's going to allow, they will be judged and they'll be judged by being conquered by other nations if they don't turn back to him. But Israel, they, they didn't have any good kings in their entire succession of kings for 200 years. They were all bad. And God allow, and even though the prophets are warning them, they don't pay attention. And then God allows a new world power called Assyria to come in and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, and basically disperse its people. And Israel is wiped off the face of the map from that time on. Now Judah, God protects Judah from that. Because they're not rebelling as bad. They have good kings and bad kings. And really it culminates with a good king that they had named Josiah. And Josiah was the best king Judah ever had. But there's a lot going on in the world. And what happens is there's an even newer world power now. Babylon, who is challenging to conquer Assyria. There's another sort of a third place player in all this, which is the kingdom of Egypt. Egypt goes up north to help Syria fight off Babylon. As they do that, they have to pass through Judah. Josiah, who's a good king, and we don't know exactly why he does this, but he stops Pharaoh Nekor and he says, hey, you can't come through here. And he's like, what? I mean, Judah's just a little small country. And, and Josiah says, yeah, you can't come. And well, they get, they get in a battle, and Josiah is killed. And the Egyptians go on up, assist Assyria. In the meantime, after Josiah dies, the people install one of Josiah's son named Jehoahaz as king. Well, after Egypt goes up, they're with Assyria. They actually lose in a battle to Babylon, then they're heading back home in defeat. They go back through Judah, and all of a sudden there's this new king. He's only been around three months, and that's Jehoahaz. And they say, hey, you don't appoint, you know, the Pharaoh's going, you don't appoint the kings. I appoint the kings in Judah from now on. And so he removes him, and he appoints a new king named Jehoiakim. And so Jehoiakim is left in charge. 
In the meantime, the balance of power in the whole world has now shifted to Babylon. Babylon has conquered Assyria, and now Babylon comes, and Jehoiakim, who is also another son of Josiah, like his brother Jehoahaz, they were both evil. Josiah was the last good king, and they rebelled against God. Nebuchadnezzar and the prophets are warning Judah, which is now called Israel again, warning the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, look, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back, or we're going to be judged by these other nations. They don't listen. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're not listening. Jer Jeremiah is alive during this time. Jehoiakim then is attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, and he is conquered and killed, and at that time, Nebuchadnezzar takes the best and brightest out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, and exiles them, and he takes them back to Babylon, and that includes the prophet Daniel. So Daniel's in Babylon, and Jehoiakim is killed. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, appoints Jehoiachin, which is Jehoiakim's son, to be the king. And so, um, he, uh, well, after they go, actually, after they go, the people, just like they did Jehoahaz, the people then decide to make Jehoiachin the king. And again, these kings that the people make only have about a three-month shelf life because three months later, he's rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar comes, comes right back, and he takes Jehoiachin captive and, conquered, and conquers Israel. And that time, he takes another 10,000 people, and that includes the guy we're talking about, Ezekiel. And so, so he goes away, and then Nebuchadnezzar sets up a puppet king who's a Jewish guy named Zedekiah. So that's kind of the context. Now, through Ezekiel's eyes, Ezekiel was 13 years old when the good king Josiah dies tragically in battle. And so over the next, from when he's 13 to 25, he sees the secession of all these kings. But when Zedekiah is set up and Jehoiachin is taken back, he goes into exile into a town near Babylon, into the Babylonian Empire. And so that's kind of the context. So, so you with me? Where we're at historically. So now Zedek, what was that? Are you with me? Okay, some of you are with me. If you're not, don't worry about it. We're getting into some strange stories. And, and by the way, if you're new here today, sorry, because we're, we're getting into some, some stuff in Ezekiel. It, it's, it's weird stuff. But God said do it, so Ezekiel did it. So Ezekiel, he's 25 when he's taken into exile. He's seen all this. He's been there for Jehoaz. Actually, he was a man that was planning to go into the priesthood to serve God in the temple, Solomon's temple, and, but you don't serve until you're 30, and he's 25 when Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiachin and 10,000 people, including Ezekiel, captive again. So that's the second exile. Now, he's, he's in Babylon area. He turns 30 years old. We didn't normally go into ministry serving in the temple, but he's not there anymore. And then God calls him to be a prophet, and that's what Tim was talking about last time. And remember, God had him acting out. He has a vision, 
And then God has him act out like street theater, a bunch of things like prophets did once in a while in front of the other exiles that he's with near Babylon. And then if you'll remember, there are four things that Tim went over. And, uh, and he actually had B words for all these. I don't know if you caught that or not. But uh, the Bs were the brick, the bed, the bread, and the barber. That's a weird way to remember it. But he does four, Ezekiel does four things. God tells Ezekiel to do four really weird things. And so the first thing he tells him is get a brick. And then in front of the people, you start kind of modeling Jerusalem, kind of draw out how Jerusalem looks so they'll recognize it. And he's, he was in Jerusalem until he was 25 years old, so he knows all that. And so he's making all that. And then play army men and make these little things and then sort of depict out a siege of Jerusalem. Like here's the town and these guys, you know, you're doing all this stuff. And you're doing that in front of the whole town. Everybody's looking at him. And, see, and then after you do that, lay down on your side for over a year. So for over a year, every day, he goes to work. He basically wakes up at his house, goes to the town square, puts ropes on himself, and lays down on one side. And after he does that for about a year, for a few months, he lays down on the other side. And everybody's like, what is going on? And while he's doing that, he's saying, okay, now I want you to, to eat, but your diet is going to be restricted. And so I want you to make kind of a poor bread out of a poor man's flour, which is some mixtures of things kind of at the bottom of the bins. And you're going to do that, and you're going to cook it over manure. You know, and that sounds good. And so did that. Tim was telling us about this, right? And then there's the barber part where it was like, okay, now I want you, after he did all that, cut off all your hair, and then some of it I want you to burn, a third of that, and some of it I want you to, to chop up, you know, I, you know and, and then others of it I want you to scatter it to the wind, scatter it. And then, but a little bit I want you to hang on to a remnant. And so all that happens, and all that is acting out for the people, because during most of this, he can't talk. And it's all acting out for the people, basically, that there's another exile coming. Bad things are happening. It's a warning, because you're not following God. And it's mainly a warning to the people back in Israel, but he's just telling his people in exile, hey, this is what's going on, and this is what's going to happen, that there's going to be a siege, people are going to starve, that's the bad eating, and the people are going to be scattered and burnt and killed, chopped up. You know, he's just describing what's going to happen. All right. Are you with me? Now Ezekiel, 14 months later after his first vision, so he's 31 years old, He's meeting with some other Jewish leaders who are also in exile with him near Babylon. And they're meeting in his house, and they're probably just talking about world events and what's happening, what's going to happen to Israel. But during the meeting, he has a vision. He zones out. And in the vision, God takes Ezekiel and transports him back to Jerusalem and not just Jerusalem, but the temple where Ezekiel sees the depth of the corruption of the people in Israel about serving other gods. And he sees the leaders of Israel serving false gods, worshiping false gods, and putting false god images of false gods all around the inside walls of, of the temple complex. And he's horrified at this. Remember, he was going to be a priest. He was tuned in to what was happening at the temple. 
He's horrified by what he sees. And not only that, he sees a group of women who have erected a statue of Tammuz, which is a Babylonian god of fertility, on the temple ground, and they're worshiping this thing. It's terrible. And God says, there's going to be judgment, like there always has been. Judgment is coming. And God will judge those leaders for having stony hearts. There's a whole stony heart section toward him. Hard hearts toward God. They keep rebelling. They're going to be judged. And, and we might ask, how does this keep happening? When will the people learn their lesson? They keep drifting from God. Bad things happen. They're conquered. Finally, in desperation, they call out to God, and God saves them over and over and over again. Why do the people keep having the hard hearts? And we can ask that question, but really, we ought to ask it of ourselves. How can that be for us? If we know God loves us and has made provision and wants connection with us and has made a way for that to happen, even though we're sinful people and he's holy, how can we have hard hearts toward God? As a matter of fact, what Tim was saying last week, I, I think he ended by saying that, hey, our response to God is he just, all these things, it's done out of love because he's pursuing us and he wants us to respond back to him. Wants us to return to him is the word that Tim was using. And, and so you, if you were here last Sunday, I just watched it on the internet. But, but if you were here, think about that. Because we were challenged to think about the areas in our life that we are most out of sync with God and his truth. And when we identify those areas that we should return back to God, which is repentance, that we should admit it and turn back to God. So that was a challenge. But think about this. Let's say, so last Sunday, maybe you did what Tim asked us to do, which was identify what area in my life right now am I most out of sync with God. But if you did that, you identified that area, but then all during this last week up until today, you haven't really done anything to deal with that. You haven't really acted on your repentance. Then that's having a hard heart. That's having a, a, a stony heart against God. That's, it's the same thing. We know God's there and we just kind of go the opposite way. But remember, and we learned this in our last series, God's telling us then and in the New Testament and now, he's saying this, do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Israel kept doing. They kept adopting the culture. They kept conforming to the nations around them. And then that just led them to disaster. And then they would finally turn back to God. And God's telling us this whole, do not be conformed to the world around you. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is through the word. This is what God is telling us then and now. And so, after Ezekiel's vision, he snaps out of it. He's in this room with these other leaders. And then he tells them, wow. Uh, I had a vision. God just took me here. Here's what I saw. And, the, and so he gives him all that. 
And then God calls him to act out some other strange things, all right? And that, we're going to pick it up in Ezekiel chapter 12. So hang on. Here's Ezekiel, prophet of God, going to do weird things. Then the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel talking, saying, Son of man, that's what he's calling Ezekiel. Jesus is also called that in the New Testament. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile, and go into exile by day in their sight, even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house." Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. Then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel." Pretty weird, right? Are you with me? Did I hear it? No? Yeah, okay. No, that's all right. If you're not with me, I get it. This is weird. All right, so here's what he tells them. Hey, dig a hole through your house and then gather up your go bag or the essentials and like you're being exiled. And he's doing this in front of all these people that have already been exiled. Uh, and, and it's just kind of strange. Dig a hole through the wall in your house. I remember a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had uh, the family over to our house. I think it was on Mother's Day, but I'm not sure. And uh, so we have uh, eight grandkids, and they're all seven or under. And so they're all kind of in the backyard playing. And then I looked out the window, and we have a barn behind our house. And I saw Zach, and uh, not Zach, Toby, Zach's son. Toby is about this tall, and he had a shovel about this tall. And he was digging on the side of the barn. And, then I, you know, and, and I thought, well, that looks interesting. Number one, he's a little kid with a big shovel, you know, and he's digging, 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 didn't really know what that was about. It's right next to the barn, kind of wondering about it. Later, I go outside, and I run into Toby, and Toby is covered with dirt. His church clothes, covered with dirt. And I'm like, Toby, why, why do you have dirt all over? He goes, well, Aria was locked in the barn. So Aria, we have a, a big overhead barn door that's like 12 feet by 16 feet or something. They can't lift it. It's too heavy. And then there's a little man door, a regular size door, but that has a bad doorknob on it and it's hard to work. Kids can't work it. So somehow they were playing and Arya got stuck in the barn and Toby could hear her. So he got a shovel. They couldn't open the door and he dug under the side of the barn, made a hole and then skimming through the hole under, because it's a pole barn, under into the barn got Aria, and then they came out. So that's why they're covered with, so kind of weird. Yeah, kind of, oh, yeah, kind of cool. So sometimes, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, about 14 years old, we had moved up from New Mexico to Colorado. And, uh, and after we got there, we had this old boat. My dad bought this old aluminum boat. And we had that with us. And uh, dad said, and it's kind of a big boat to put, it doesn't really fit in a garage. And he said, I'm going to put this in our garage. And it's like, well, it doesn't fit in our garage. And he, but he made a way. He took off the two outboard engines 
And then it still didn't fit. It had a long tongue on it, like the tongue for the trailer. It was like here to that corner, just long. He had that done. He had that welded on. I don't remember exactly why that was. I think because we had a, hanger, a, a camper hanging off the vehicle we were pulling it with. Anyway, so it's long. And so he says, well, you know, this doesn't fit. Well, his solution was to knock a hole in, at the end of the garage, the wall. You know, and I'm kind of like, ah, you know, he's doing this, and I'm standing there. He gets a sledgehammer. This is our new house, you know, and, and he knocked a hole at the end, through the wall at the end of the garage so that tongue could fit through there, and we could shut the garage door, and he could work on the boat during the winter. And I'm thinking, I don't really, so I never understood this because you can't hook it up in the backyard and pull it out that way, right? There's still a wall there. And so you're going to have to back this boat up all the way like to the middle of the driveway, even though we have a long driveway, to get a, a vehicle on it. Why aren't we backing it in and just not closing the garage door all the way? But anyway, he had a plan. I still don't know why that was, and I'll never know that probably. But anyway, with Ezekiel, God tells him exactly why he's doing this. You're going to, make, you're going to dig a hole. They lived in uh, oven-baked brick homes back then, rock. You're going to dig a hole through the wall. You're going to have your baggage. You're going to shove that through the hole. Then you're going to crawl through the hole. Then you're going to pick up your baggage, your, your stuff, like you're going into exile, all your essential items. And then you're going to blindfold yourself. And then you're going to leave. And it's like you're in exile. And all the people, he's doing this in front of everybody. They know he's a prophet. They already saw the other weird things he's been doing for years. And so they're watching this. And they're going, what's up? And then God says, Hey, when they ask you, you're going to tell them what's going on. And so the people are wondering. When they ask you, tell them it concerns the prince in Jerusalem. Well, who would that be? Well, that would be King Zedekiah that Nebuchadnezzar left in charge and his people. And he's showing what's going to happen. It's going to be a third exile and an even bigger event. And so here it is. We'll pick it up later in Ezekiel 12. Again, verse 12 now. The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in, in the dark and go out. And they will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. And he will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, though he will die there. All right, so, and this doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, so Zedekiah is going to end up being captured and taken to Babylon. But even though he goes to Babylon, he's not going to be able to see it. What, what is going on here? Well, we know exactly what happened because shortly after this in history that we know from world history, but we also know from 2 Kings 24 and also Jeremiah, who's a prophet all during this, still back in Judah, that what happened is Zedekiah, after reigning for 11 years, decided that he's going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar set him up. And so Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem again and puts it under siege. And siege means they surround the city, they cut off everything, and they starve the city out. And in the meantime, they're building ramps so they can go over the city walls. Well, as the siege lasts two years, the pe it's, it's dreadful, the people are starving. This is what Ezekiel's been telling people is going to happen. And it's what Jeremiah in the, in the country's been telling them is going to happen. Well, after two years, and when it's really dicey in there and people are starving the walls start being broken by Nebuchadnezzar's army. And Zedekiah's fighting men realizes there's a way to dig out. 
And so they take Zedekiah and they break through the wall, dig a hole, widen the hole, and get out. And then they go through the enemy lines and they're fleeing Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's forces catch up with Zedekiah and they bring him to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar assembles all Zedekiah's sons in front of him and kills all of them in front of Zedekiah and then gouges out Zedekiah's eyeballs. So that's the last thing he ever saw and then takes him into captivity into Babylon and that's how he's taken to Babylon but he never sees it. All that happens in history. All that is a warning from God. And, Zed, and Ezekiel's dramatizing all these events, showing the exiles what God's going to do with the people who remain. And then after that vision, Ezekiel's told, hey, when you eat your bread and you drink your body, you eat your bread with trembling and drink your water with quaking and anxiety to represent what's going to happen in the land there, what these people are going to be going through. And then God tells Ezekiel, hey, that siege that I was telling you about, it started. And so it's playing out in real time. Then God tells Ezekiel that something tragic is going to happen in Ezekiel's life. And he tells Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. This is strange, hard stuff. God tells Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. And when she does, and all the people know how much you love your wife, you are not to mourn for her. You are not to grieve openly for her. But rather, you mourn in your heart in privacy. You don't do all the customary things showing grief. You sort of just, just go on like normal. You can only grieve in your heart. We see that in Ezekiel 24, beginning in verse 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. So then Ezekiel's wife, who's the desire of his eyes, dies, and Ezekiel keeps obeying God. And he doesn't grieve publicly. He just groans silently. And the people notice this, and they know how much Ezekiel loved his wife, and so they ask, and when people ask, you know, now what are you doing, Ezekiel? What does this mean? Why are you behaving this way? Why are you acting like you're not grieving for her? We know how you felt about her. How are you not grieving? And then God says, when they ask that, tell them, I, God, am about to profane my temple. It will be destroyed. And any relatives that you have that are still in Jerusalem, they're going to be killed. But you exiles here in Babylon, you're not to mourn. And this is like a turning point in the book of Ezekiel. He's, uh, he's lost the most important relationship he had. And, and, to, and it's to dramatize something that God's saying, hey, I'm going to allow Jerusalem to fall and all these things that happened to Zedekiah, but it's not just that. The temple that Solomon built 400 years ago is going to be destroyed. The temple, that's the pride of the nation. The pride, 
you know, the pride of Israel, the pride of Israel and Judah, and then the pride of Judah. It's been 400 years. It's their national identity. It's what they're known by. I'm going to allow my temple to be destroyed. And that is exactly what happens. It's gone. And the exiles are told, don't mourn because this is what God warned you about. This is what the prophets have been saying all along. You wouldn't listen. Now it's happening. These people will die. This temple that stood for 400 years longer than our country's been a nation, that's going to be wiped out. Do not mourn. This is what you wanted to come. Instead of focusing on the temple, focus on me. Return back to God. A better day is coming. And through all this, God emphasizes that we're responsible for our sin. Here's the thing. You know, we, we look at a story like this way back then, and some weird things are happening, and we're going, what does this mean to me? What? what who cares about all this? This is a, an historical event that happened, but it's also, Scripture says, it's an example for us to learn. What's the whole point of this? The whole point of this is that we need to stop being hard-hearted toward God or judgment will come on us. That's what he's saying. And back then it was worshiping other gods. And today we don't worship gods of wood and steel and, and clay in our country, although that does happen in other places around the world. But you know what we do? We set up idols in our own heart all the time. Our hearts are idol factories. We keep elevating things in our life above God. We do it like almost every day. We elevate things above God. And that can be power, success, you know, business, whatever, money. But it can be all those things. But it can also be good things, family, children, relate relationships, whatever, whatever in our life that we set above God, that is an idol in our heart. And we are being hard-hearted toward God in that example, that area of our life. And when you do that, it will always bring destruction. You want to mess up your family? Make your child the most important thing in your life. Because they'll grow up thinking they're the center of the universe. You will mess them up. God's saying, first commandment, nothing above God. God first. Then God instructs us to love our children, to love our wife self-sacrificially, to honor, respect our husbands. You know, God tells us that. But don't, don't get it backwards just live it out. As a matter of fact, this week, I saw an, an illustration, just one of those things you see on, on the internet, just a, a clip, a video clip. And to me, this was an example of somebody just living out their lives. Some event happened, happened to be an athletic event, and they're just living out their lives with God in, in charge. Here, here it is. We've got a back row left. Alex Garber with ESPN, for, for the players, I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious, it's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances 
and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I'd, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled. And I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously, we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win. But it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like, shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Patty. So that just happened. That just happened this week. These ladies won the D1 College World Series, and they've dominated for three years. But listen to what they're saying. Up or down, God first. You know, Jada, I think, the second one who talks, she's saying, hey, you know, we won, maybe the year or two years before, I don't remember. You know, we won, but then after we won, it's like, yeah, I'm happy, but where's my joy? It's like, what's next? Now, what's, what's the next day? Now what? There's emptiness. When we chase things of the world, they can even be good things. They do not satisfy. Our joy is only in Christ. And she talks about that, but now my joy is in Christ. They're like, hey, there's a lot of failure, although they're like 35 and 1 this year. But, you know, there's a lot of failure in softball. Hey, you can't, you can't get your joy from this. It's got to be from God. That's just, that's just three young women living their lives, good or bad, this happens to be a good moment, following Christ. That's how we all should be. And that's what God is, is bringing home 
to the exiles and the Jewish people. He's talking about personal responsibility. I had a few more verses. I, I just don't think I'm going to go there. But like in chapter 18, he talks about personal responsibility. He keeps hammering that. They kind of had a proverb where they're saying, hey, you know, our fathers ate sour grapes and now our teeth are set on edge, meaning, hey, it's not our fault. We're going through all this stuff. That's somebody else's fault. God's hammering home. God says, no, this will not be a proverb in Israel. This will not become a saying, you do you. You're responsible for your own stuff. Quit shifting blame to other people for your problems. Own your problems. Turn to God and repent. Follow him. And that's what all, that's exactly how all of us, that's what all of us should do. That's what God wants from them then, from people in the New Testament then and today. He wants us to just follow him. And so let's, let's stand. We're going to close in prayer. And uh, actually, yeah, I'll just close this in prayer. And, uh, and we'll wrap up today. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. And Father, we recognize that not everybody here is, is a follower of you yet. And, uh, and for some of those, Lord, in spite of the message and everything, which is a little different, a little weird, Lord, I pray that they would know that you love them and they would feel your, your spirit tugging on their hearts. Lord, and warning them to, to, to repent and come to God. And Father, for those who have, were just like that, but you've allowed us to come to you, Father, help us to be who you want us to be. Lord, help us to follow you wholeheartedly. And no matter what our circumstance is, that we're not getting our joy from that. We're getting our joy from you. And Father, help us not to have hearts of stone toward you in these different areas in our life, but soft hearts toward you, that we would return to you, that we would repent, that we'd want to follow you. Lord, because we understand that you've made a way for sinful people to be reconciled by sending your son, allowing him to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin because all sin has to be punished. You did that through Christ so that we can be forgiven if we would only have faith in you. Lord, help us to follow you more closely. Help our friends who are here with us that don't know that to discover that faith and follow you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.